Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Well, I'm excited to be with you here this morning. I'd like you to turn, and I'm not going to waste any time because I, I, I don't like it when I cut into my own sermon time. <laughs> so if you would have your Bibles, Pastor Chad asked me, do you want to preach a standalone message, you don't want to continue in Mark. And I tell you, the hardest thing I ever do is just get one message, okay? So I said, no, let's do the Mark thing. Keep right on going. So Mark 10. Turn to Mark 10, if you would. Verses 32 through 45 will be our passage today. It's really interesting. Two and a half years that I've been gone, I wear glasses now more than I don't, and my sermons now are in larger notebooks than they used to be, and my font went from 1110 to a 1413. And I still use the glasses, so things change, don't they? I want you to look at verse 31 in particular. Verse 31 was Pastor Chad's last verse from last week's message. And I checked a whole bunch of different translations because I just thought, I think that verse belongs in this section. And most translations ended verse 31 with a section from last week. And so I'm looking at that, and I'm suddenly realizing it belongs in both. It's what we call a connection verse, a a transition verse. Jesus said in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, what did he mean when he said that? Well, I think he already illustrated the first part. Many that will be first will be last because he talked about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler who was first, he was prominent, he was significant, he was rich, he was young, and he's already a ruler. I mean, he's at the top of the list. The guy graduated top of the class. He's in Forbes magazine. He's a, a who's who kind of guy. But he ended up last because he forfeited eternal riches. He forfeited eternal life for material wealth. That was his God. That was his claim to greatness. Well, the second part of verse 31 The last first, I think, applies to today and what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is going to teach from our current passage how the last will be first and the first will be last, how the least becomes great. How many of you ever think about being great? Let me see your hand. How many of you just lied? Okay. Listen, I think every one of us thinks from time to time about greatness, whether it's greatness in sports or greatness in whatever it may be, relationship, I, I, I don't know. But we think about greatness. We think about significance. We think about importance. And by the way, it is a God-given passion. But just like all God-given passions, it can be corrupted by sin. And so often it is corrupted by sin. Now, one of the things I want to notice when we go through this passage today, Jesus never once condemns or criticizes the disciples for wanting to be great. Not once. Never criticizes them. And this isn't the first time that the disciples have jockeyed for position in greatness. If you flip back to chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, you'll find out they did the same thing there. Jesus had to instruct them. They wanted to be great. Here's the thing. 
Only God can define greatness. Only God can define what it means for kingdom greatness. We don't get to define that. Our culture defines it for us. The world we live in defines it for us. The problem is this. If you want to live by what the culture defines as greatness, and you want to live by what the world defines as greatness, your greatness will be very temporary. Because John said in 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away, and all its desires, whoever does the will of God, is the one that abides forever. So there is a path to greatness. God doesn't oppose it. Uh, He doesn't object to it. What he opposes to and what he objects to is the process by which we try to attain it. And it's greatness, not just in this life, more importantly, it's greatness in the kingdom. It's eternal greatness. Now, so listen, I mean, I'll tell you what, uh, let me spare you. If you're stuck on greatness in this life and you don't want to know about eternal greatness and kingdom greatness, close up your Bible and go ahead and you can leave right now and have lunch early. This is eternal greatness. That's what our passage addresses today. It breaks down... Very interestingly, in three sections, the prediction of Jesus, the pride of the disciples, and the priority of a disciple. So let's look first at the prediction of Jesus, verse 32 through 34. Verse 32 says this, and they, now I'll just have you mark, if you want to mark in your Bible, the they there refers to the 12 disciples. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they, the 12 disciples, were amazed, and those who followed, so there's another crowd here. These are the people who also traveled with Jesus. They weren't part of the 12 disciples. They were just a crowd, small crowd that followed Jesus most every place where he went. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them. Now, let me just give you a little background so you understand what's going on here, all right? That little phrase, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is only a few weeks away from his death here in Mark 10. So from the time that we start reading in Mark 10 to the time we get to his crucifixion is really only three, four, maybe five weeks. All of that into this last section of his life. And he's walking ahead of the 12 disciples. That's not uncommon. Rabbis would do that. Mark says the disciples and other followers were amazed, literally stunned, shocked, And those who follow were afraid. Now, one of the important things when you're studying the Bible is this. You need to ask questions. Interpretive questions. Who, what, where, when, how, why. You see something you don't understand? You need to ask a question about it. So I asked the question this. Why were they stunned? Why were they afraid? And I realize it's because they realized that Jesus was walking into a death trap. Go back, if you will, and have your Bibles open. I hope you do. Go back to verse 1 for just a second. If you don't, you can see it up here. Verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. It says this. He, Jesus, left there. There is Capernaum. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He left Capernaum. He left there. 
That was the end of his Galilean ministry. For over a year and a half, Jesus had been in Galilee. Now, if you remember that Israel, now Pastor Chad has told you this, Israel is a divided country. So you have northern Israel and you have southern Israel and you have Samaria in the middle that cuts them off. Northern Israel focused around the Sea of Galilee. Southern Israel was called Judea and focused around the city of Jerusalem. He has been in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee doing all these things and all of a sudden he comes back to Capernaum and people have basically had it with him. And he realizes that there's no more sense of talking to them. There's no more sense of doing miracles there. They're rejecting him. They're, they're not going to receive him at all. And so he leaves. He leaves. And he went to the region, verse 1 says, of Judea. Now, just stop right there because Mark is very, very vague, that phrase. He went into the region of Judea. Matter of fact, Matthew does the same thing, very, very vague. But I'm going to tell you that that little phrase, went into the region of Judea, covers a span of nearly four to five months of time. And John chapter, uh, John chapter 7 through chapter 11 and Luke chapter 9 verse 51 through chapter 18 verse 14 covers that span of time. So we know what happened in there. So if you go back and you read in there, you know that Lazarus was raised from the dead and you know that Jesus had confrontations with the religious leaders in Judea and the fact was they were trying to kill him. And so he left Judea and you'll notice the rest of verse 1, the rest of verse 1 uh, as soon as I find it here, says the crowds gathered to him again, oh, and, and, and beyond the Jordan. He left the, went to the region of Judea, Judea and then beyond the Jordan. So he leaves Judea, leaves the Jerusalem area, and he goes on the east side of the Jordan in a land that was called Perea. That's where verses 2 through where we're at right now take place. But he is heading back to Jerusalem. And see, the interesting thing is the disciples realize, all right, Galilee doesn't like you. They want to kill you. Judea doesn't like you. They want to kill you. You're on the east side of the Jordan. What in the world are you doing going back to Jerusalem? So the disciples are stunned. The crowd's afraid because they know what possibly could happen to Jesus. And Jesus senses their fear and their apprehension, so he takes the 12 aside. Now, he doesn't do this to the whole crowd. He takes the 12 aside because once Jesus began to head back to Jerusalem, his whole focus was on the disciples. He didn't do many more miracles. He didn't do many more healings. Basically, what he did was teach. He taught the disciples. I mean, you've got to realize he's only four or five, six months away from his death, and he's got a ragtag bunch of knuckleheads that he's going to leave the ministry to here. He's got work to do in the next four or five months, all right? So he takes the disciples aside and he predicts the things that are going to happen to him. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now this is nothing new. This is the third time he's told them this. If you go back to chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, he said the same thing. They didn't understand it were afraid to ask. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 31 and 32, he tells it to them again. They still didn't understand it, but this time he adds detail. So they had heard him say, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn me to death. I'm going to be crucified and rise again. But now he adds some things. They will condemn him to deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will rise. How do you know all that was going to happen? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, he knew the Scriptures. He knew the Scriptures. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 18, verse 3, we read this says, see, he's talking to the disciples, same event. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Did you know that? 
His flogging, the crown of thorns, his beatings, his sufferings, the ridicule, the betrayal, his crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, every one of those things were predicted in Scripture in the Old Testament. So he knew the Scriptures. He knew they had to be fulfilled. Not only that, secondly, he knew everything. <laughs> He's God. He's omniscient. Of course he would know. He, he, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. He said that the day he chose Judas. Haven't I chose you twelve and one of you is as the devil? He already knew that. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. We'll see that when you get to Mark 14. He knew he was going to be delivered to the chief priest by Judas. He knew they would sentence him to death. He knew they would turn him over to the Gentiles because Jewish people weren't able to execute anybody. It had to be done by Rome. He knew he'd be ridiculed and spit on and mocked and scourged and crucified and rise. He knew all that. Predicted it with absolute accuracy because when you come to chapter 15, that's what you'll read. So I can understand with the amazement and the fear of the disciples and the crowd that are with him as he's been telling these things and as they know how Galilee felt about him and how Judea felt about him and now he's going back into Judea to Jerusalem where the religious leaders are. What I can't understand when I read this account is the reaction of the disciples to his prediction. And let's look at that. Number two, the pride of the disciples. 35, verse 35. And, so you got a little and there, that's a connective word. So we know there's not much time at all that's elapsed between when he's given this prediction and James and John approach him. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This is stunning. This is stunning. The arrogance, the pride, the selfishness, the narcissism, the insensitivity, this is amazing. I mean, what in the world? He's just got telling him he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be beat, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be crowned, he's going to suffer and die. And James and John says, hey, can we sit beside you on the throne before you go? I mean, what prompted them to make such a request at that time to Jesus? And I can only think of a couple of things. One of the things was they knew they were part of Jesus' inner circle. Uh, Jesus had 12 disciples, but there were certain things he only did with three of them, Peter, James, and John. For instance, in chapter 5 of Mark, he healed a synagogue ruler, Jairus' daughter, raised her from the dead, and he only took Peter, James, and John with him. In uh, Mark chapter 9, he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and showed them his glory, and he only took Peter, James, and John with him. And James and John probably got this thing pretty well figured out. They're looking at Jesus, and they're seeing his humanity. By that, I simply mean this. He has a right hand, and he has a left hand. There's only places for two. We got to get Peter out of here. Well, let's approach him quickly. That's possible. I think the other possibility is there's a family tie here. I think there may have been what James and John were thinking. Matter of fact, if you read the parallel passage in Matthew 20, verse 20, it'll tell you that it actually was James and John's mother who approached Jesus first. Talk about a couple of mommy boys. Hey, Mom, go ask Jesus. You know, and then they, they either were there right with her or they followed very closely with the same thing. And if you take all the crucifixion accounts together, you can find out that um, their mother's name was Salome. Not Salami, but Salome. 
And she was Mary's sister, the mother of Jesus, which would make them cousins. So maybe they thought there was some kind of family tie, whatever. But Jesus has just finished talking about his death, and they want prominent positions in the kingdom. And you know, I, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, they must feel a little guilty. They must feel a little guilty. Because did you notice how they asked? They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. In other words, kind of like, um, I remember going to my dad and saying, hey, dad, uh, would you promise to do something if I ask you to do it? I never got a good response from that. <laughs> never. That was a kid trick, and it just didn't work, and it's not going to really work here. I will give them credit. They did have the faith that he was the Messiah and there was going to be a kingdom. They'd finally got that through their head. That probably happened on the transfiguration when they saw his glory. So Jesus challenges them. Verse 38, he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism in which I am baptized? Now the cup and baptism here are both metaphors for the intensity of suffering that Jesus would go through. One author described it as being plunged into calamity, not sprinkled, plunged, baptized. And he's asking them if they'd be willing to share his fate and experience the same waters of hardship and suffering. And they had no clue what he was talking about. And part of that reason is this, very important principle. They did not understand that the degree of greatness in the kingdom of God is directly related to the degree of suffering for the glory of God. They didn't understand that. They wanted greatness without suffering. Hasn't changed much, has it? And by the way, the answer is no. Can they be baptized with the baptism Jesus baptized with? Can they drink from the cup that Jesus is going to drink with? Well, in a sense, no. Because his baptism and the cup he's going to drink is going to lead to his death that brings redemption for all mankind if they put their faith and trust in him. They're going to drink the cup. They're going to, have, they're going to be baptized with a part of his baptism, but it's not going to be able to save anybody, not even themselves. They did not understand that the degree of greatness in the kingdom of God is directly related to the degree of suffering for the glory of God. No matter how much they suffered, they couldn't redeem anybody. But, verse 39, their response demonstrates that they had no idea of the magnitude of what they were asking. They said to them, yeah, we're able. <laughs> no problem. Piece of cake. We can do that. Kind of like Peter. Me? Deny you? What? What are you talking about? These guys? Maybe not me. I mean, it's just an answer of pride. And so Jesus responds now to that with two statements. Verse 39, he says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, just not to the same degree. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. His first statement has to do about suffering. His second statement has to do about rewards. His first statement says, you will suffer to a degree like I suffer. The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism I'm baptized with, you'll be baptized with. And by the way, that, is, that did happen. James, the oldest brother, was martyred. He was the first of the apostles to be killed. Acts chapter 12, Herod beheaded him. The apostle John was the last of the apostles to die. He was the only one of the 12 apostles that wasn't martyred. But he went through suffering. Tradition has it that he was tied with a rope and lowered into a 
burning pot of boiling oil. And they lowered him into it, and he miraculously was delivered from that. And later he was sent by the emperor to the island of Patmos to work in the rock mines. It was there, by the way, where he received the vision of Jesus and the revelation that we have as the last book of our Bible. So they would suffer to a degree like Jesus. The second statement had to do with the reward, and basically he said the reward already, was already determined by the Father. To sit at my right hand, at my left, is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it is prepared. Parallel passage in Matthew 20, 23 says, prepared by my Father. So you say, well, who is going to sit on Jesus' right hand or left? I don't know. And neither do you. And neither does anybody. The Father knows that. But I'll tell you this much. If it's based on degree of suffering, it probably won't be many of us. Now notice the response in verse 41 of the other ten disciples. Because the other ten disciples, they're standing there listening to this whole thing. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant. You can put a really deep Greek word meaning, ticked off. (laughs) They just ticked off at James and John. And I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, what if I was there? What would I be ticked off about? Would I be ticked off because um, of their insensitivity to what Christ just said he was going to go through? Would I be ticked off um, because they were being so selfish? No, the truth is they were ticked off because they didn't think of it first. That's what they were ticked off about. The whole, all of the disciples were caught up with their own self-importance. They had been arguing about that numbers of times. Who's the greatest? So Jesus has to do his teaching. Come here, boys. Let's sit down and talk about this. Let me tell you what a real disciple looks like. And so we see thirdly now the priority of a disciple, verses 42 through 45. Let's look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over. If you have your Bible open, circle that phrase, lord it over. Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Circle that phrase. Shall not be so among you. Key phrase two times, over them, over them, over them. You know what the world's key to success is? What the world's key to greatness is? You've got to be over somebody. You've got to be over somebody. You've got to make it to the top so that people look up to you and you look down at them. That's the world's idea of greatness. In the, in, in the world, the way to greatness is to work your way up. Get to the top, no matter how you have to do it. Use someone, step over someone, but you got to get there. even works that way in the church, unfortunately. You want to lord it over. You want to exercise authority. You want to get to the top. You want to look down on others. You want to subdue them. You want to make sure that they stay beneath you. Somebody's got to be beneath me. And we'll make it to the top at whatever the expense The way of our culture, the way of our world is everybody's going to serve you. You're the Lord. They serve you. But notice verse 43. This isn't God's way. But it shall not be so among you. And it's interesting. In the Greek, the word not starts the sentence. Not. Not. Jesus wanted to make sure he understood not. This is not the way. It's a very emphatic phrase. This is not the way to greatness for for kingdom people. The great are not those who use everyone else to get to the top. 
The greater are not those who manipulate people and climb over people. It's the complete opposite. Look at verse 43 right in the middle. But, here's the opposite. But whoever would be great among you. Now, did you notice he's not condemning them for being great? You see that? He says, you want to be great? Great. That's fine. Fantastic. Whoever would be great among you, here's how you do it. You must be your servant. And whoever would be first, so it's all right if you're first. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's how it is in the kingdom. By the way, that's not natural, is it? I'm going to tell you what now, it's not natural with me. I fight that all the time. Fight that all the time. To become great, Jesus says, you must become the least. To become great, you must become the servant. To become first, you've got to be willing to be the last. By the way, hmm, where'd you hear that? Verse 31. First will be last, last will be first. And he's very specific about what the last and the first look like. To be great, you must be willing to be both a servant and a slave. A servant and a slave. In other words, you know what he's saying? This is, just, this, this is why it's not natural. We think to go up, you've heard the phrase, climb the ladder of success. Have you ever heard anybody say, hey, you need to slide down the ladder of success? We've got to climb the ladder of success. You're down here, you've got to climb to the top. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, if you want to go high, you've got to go low. That's not real natural. He says, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the servant, diakonos is the word. Diakonos, where we get the word deacon, means a table waiter, a server. When you go to a restaurant, you got somebody who comes and serves you. Jesus said this in Luke 22, uh, 27, parallel passage. He says, who's the greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? What would you answer? Who's the greatest, the one who sits or the one who serves? Oh, you don't want to get the wrong answer, do you? Let Jesus tell you. You'll be okay. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Yeah, in men's eyes, you're the greater. They're there to serve you. You're not there to serve them. You go in for, to the restaurant in the morning, the waitress comes out, you don't stand up and say, hey, let me get you a cup of coffee. They do that for you. That's part of their job. That's what they're supposed to do. They serve you. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And yet, look what Jesus says about himself at the end of verse 27 here in Luke he already says, the greater is the one who sits at the table. And then he says, but I am among you as the one who what? Serves. Diakoneo, the verb. I'm a servant and I serve. I'm a table waiter and I serve. This is Jesus. I'm a table waiter and I serve. But it's not, he doesn't stop there. I mean, that's, that's hard enough for us to, to take, isn't it? He doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. To go higher, you've got to go even lower. To be first, you must be the slave of all. You say slave. Okay, slave. Well, slave, servant, same thing, synonymous. No, it's not. The word slave here is the word doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. Doulos. Let me tell you about the doulos slave. They were not considered human. As a matter of fact, doulos slaves would be considered less than your best animals. They were purchased at the market. They might be able to be married, they might have children, but they didn't belong to the Dulos man. The master who bought them could sell the wife, he could sell the children, he could kill the slave and never be held accountable for it. 
The doulos, there was no human lower than the doulos slave. No human. They couldn't own anything. They never got paid for their work other than the food that their master would choose to give to them. And Jesus said, you want to be first? That's the attitude you got to have. That's the mindset you have to have. The do-loss slave, the do-loss person. And understand what that attitude means. Now stop and think about this, people. This is vital. If you take that attitude, if you take that mindset, what that means is you're never up here looking down on people. You're always down here looking up at everybody else. Every other person that you meet in your life is someone you're supposed to serve somehow. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the do-loss slave. Everybody you meet is above you. It's above you. That's, that's the mindset that you take. Our flesh wants nothing to do with that concept. Nothing. And I'm going to tell you something. You will never get it. You will never get it. You and I will never get it. We will never naturally see ourselves that way unless we have a divine motivation for it. And we do have a divine motivation for it. Look at verse 45. Our primary motivation for this kind of mindset is Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For. For even. The preposition for here shows reason. Could be translated because. In other words, why should you consider yourself a servant, a diakonos? Why should you consider yourself a slave and have that mindset? A doulos? Because even the Son of Man, Christ, that's exactly how Jesus lived. Two verbs in verse 45 characterize Jesus' life, to serve and to give. To serve and to give. It's the theme verse. I was excited about preaching this because this is the theme verse of Mark. Verse 45 is the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark. Mark is, pictures Jesus as the servant king. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, he pictures Jesus as the king. If you read the, 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 the Gospel of Luke, he pictures Jesus as perfect human. If you read the Gospel of John, he pictures Jesus as perfect God. But when you read Mark, he pictures Jesus as the servant king. The servant king. His sacrifice was the supreme, ultimate, complete sacrifice. His life for ours. And there, the preposition for does not mean because of. Here, the preposition means in the place of. So he says, to give his life as a ransom in the place of many. This is substitutionary theology. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He traded places with us. He took our sin. When he died, it was because of our sin. When God poured out his wrath upon his own son, he was pouring it out on our sin. Our sin was put on Christ. Died in our place. That's what Peter says. Look at it up here. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, who's the righteous? Jesus. For the unrighteous, who's that? <laughs> That's us. The righteous for, there's that preposition again, in the place of, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. He simply took your place. You deserve the cross. He deserved glory. He took the cross. We get glory. Wow. 
What an exchange. What an exchange. To God be the glory. Great things he has done, so loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the floodgates that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, let's, uh, let's give you some closing thoughts here, okay? As uh, fate would have it, I forgot to bring my phone up here, so I don't know how much time I've got left, but that's never stopped me before. Let's talk about, uh, just real quickly, four principles on attaining greatness from this passage that we just looked at. Number one, the path to greatness is found through suffering. The path through great to greatness is found through suffering. That, we saw that in verse 32 through 34. Jesus is the example of that. He's going to have to suffer. And we'll see how his greatness, how, where that comes from when, at the very end of this message. But the truth of it is this, little suffering, little glory. Great suffering, great glory. You say, you got any biblical affirmation of that? I knew you'd ask that, so let me give you one. Romans chapter 8, look what Paul says, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Wow, that's pretty big. Provided we what? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be what? Glorified with him. Little suffering, little glory. Great suffering, great glory. By the way, you don't have to go out and look for suffering. I'm not suggesting anybody here that you leave church today and get a big sign put on the front and back says, beat me for Jesus' sake. I don't think we're talking about that. You don't have to do that. But let's face it, as Americans hold, getting the flu, and I find Christians today don't want to talk about suffering. They just don't want to talk about it. They're, they're, they're afraid of suffering. You say, well, if I, how am I going to suffer? You know what? All you got to do is walk with Christ and talk about Him. And the way that our culture is headed, you'll find suffering. You won't have to go out and look for it. It'll find you. The only people who are believers that don't suffer are the believers who try to act like the world. And the world is mixed up wondering, well, are you a Christian or are you a part of us? When we walk with Christ and we make no excuses for it and we verbally talk about the gospel with other people, let me tell you, the suffering will come. It'll come. I just believe that fear of suffering and an unwillingness to suffer means that you think this life has more to offer you than Jesus does. I don't think that's true. The path to greatness is found through suffering. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, just come to my mind here, Philippians 2, I think it's right around verse 10, or 3, verse 10, 11, he says that I may know him, that I may know him. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, we'd like that. We like power, don't we? I'd like to know him and experience some power. I'd like to know him and the power of his resurrection. And then he says next, and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul says, I want to participate in his suffering. You know why? Because Paul knew great suffering, great glory. Great suffering, great glory. Number two. The path to greatness is found through serving. It's found through serving. Look at verse 43, Mark 10 again. Whoever would be great among you must be your diaconos, servant. What's your attitude towards others? Do you feel they should serve you or you them? Would you rather that others serve you or would you rather serve other people? 
Would you rather that people come up and pay attention to you and say nice things to you and encourage you? Or are you the one that immediately jumps out to say nice things to people, encourage them, strengthen them, help them? How is that? By the way, I want you to notice a word here. Whoever would be great among you must circle it. This is not suggestive language. This is a requirement for greatness in the kingdom of God. You must. You must be a servant. You know, I was thinking the other day, think what would happen in the church. Church as a whole, but let's just take our church. Think what would happen in our church if we started realizing when, when we get up in the morning to come together that all these other people don't exist for me, I exist for them. All these other people don't exist to benefit me, I exist to benefit them. So I'm not going to stand around and wait for people to compliment me or say hi to me or say this to me or encourage me to do this. I want to take the initiative to be the person that does that, right? That's what serving others would look like. Can you imagine a whole church that came on a Sunday morning with that kind of a mindset? Wow. Think about how little would be offended. <laughs> we wouldn't have time to wonder who didn't talk to us, who did talk to us, who encouraged us, who didn't encourage us, who looked nasty at us, who didn't look nasty. I mean, I know there's some nasty-looking people here, okay? <laughs> We'd be so busy serving, we wouldn't have time to notice that somebody's not catering to us because we're catering. The path to greatness is found through serving. Number three, the path to greatness is found through sacrifice. Verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave, do lost. I'll tell you, if there's any Greek word I don't ever want you to forget, it's this one, do loss, do loss. Are you willing to be a do-loss for Christ? A slave for Christ. He's a great master, by the way. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall find rest for your souls. He's a great master. But I think the key to understanding, again, this mindset is understanding that if you take on the mindset of a do-loss slave, you have no ownership of yourself. The do-loss slave belonged entirely to his master. And he will go, and she will do, and they will say, and they will be whatever the master tells them. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, look at this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Please get these five words. You are not your what? You don't belong to you. That's what he's saying. You say, wait a minute, why don't I belong to me? Here's why, verse 20. For, here's, here again, preposition now means reason. Because, here's why you don't belong to you. Because you were bought with a price. What's the price? For as, as, you, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, First Peter 1. Right? By the way, do you know something? The apostles got that. They got it. That's an amazing thing. They got it. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, in the introduction, he says, Simon Peter, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, an apostle. James writes, James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, Jesus' other half-brother, writes, Jude, a slave of God and brother of James. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle and slave of God. He writes in Titus chapter 1, Paul, a slave of God. They got it. They got it. They understood what they were. 
If we belong to Christ, we don't have ownership of our lives any longer. Our whole life is at his disposal. That's the life of a do-lost slave. It's the path to greatness. One last thing, number four. The path to greatness is modeled by the Savior. The path of greatness is found through suffering, it's found through serving, it's found through sacrifice, but it is most importantly modeled by the Savior. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and, and that's our motivation. He is our motivation. You say, why should I follow the path of a do-lost slave? Because it's the path of Jesus. Let me close by reading this passage from Philippians 2. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You'll never do that without a do-loss mindset. You'll never do that. You'll always want somebody that you think's below you to count you significant. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Look at others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Why? Because that's the mind of Christ. Verse 5, have this mind of, your, uh, of yourselves, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in other words, he is God, he's equal to God, he did not count that equality with God as something he had to cling to, something he had to hold on to but made himself nothing. Wow, the Son of God made himself nothing. And get this next phrase, please. Taking the form of a what? Guess what the word is? Doulos. The lowest of all humans. The glorious Son of God. The King of kings and Lord of lords became the lowest of all humans. He took upon him the form of a doulos, born in the likeness of men, found in human form, humbled himself, verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, here's the result, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. Amen. Wow. Do you realize that that passage is the epitome of verse 31 in Mark 10? The first will be last and the last will be first. That was Jesus. Think about it. He went from the highest to the lowest, back to the highest. He went from the most significant to the most insignificant to the most significant. He went from the greatest to the least to the greatest. He went from exalted God to lowly slave to exalted God-man. That's our calling, beloved. That's our calling. The greatness will not come from your status, your ethnicity, your wealth, your clothes, your car, your house, your job, your IQ. Your greatness comes only from God. And it comes through suffering, it comes through serving, it comes through sacrifice, and it comes by following the model that our Savior laid before us. That is the path, and you and I must take it if we want to be great. Amen? Amen. Amen. I thank you, Father. No possible way for us to do this on our own. There is just no way. At least for me, there's no way. Lord, I, I think too much of myself. And so I pray that we would be reminded constantly by the Holy Spirit who lives in us of the Savior that we follow the path of greatness is by being a servant and a slave, that mindset. And so, Father, that we would look upon everybody that we come in contact with with a whole different mindset, a whole different attitude. 
So teach us, Holy Spirit. This is your word. You live within us. You are the resident teacher. Apply it to our lives where it needs application for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.